Welcome everybody to Gameology episode 51. We're talking about the psychology of aesthetics. I'm one of your permanent co-hosts, Matthew Falva, and I'm joined by... Attila Gabriel Brzezinski. All right, Attila, the reason that I wanted to bring up aesthetics is that I was playing an old RPG called Legend of Dragoon. And this was made at a time to compete with Final Fantasy VII, Square Enix RPGs, games that had pretty huge production values. I mean, the the CGI in Final Fantasy VII was like cutting edge at the time, 100 people on the team, basically a precursor of the kind of development cycles and resources we would see put into modern games now. But at the time, nobody had ever seen that. And when they were advertising it, you didn't actually see any gameplay. It was all CGI stuff, which now people would hate. But back then, we really, really liked. And Sony decided to, with their Japan studio, to make a competitor. It took them a long time to do it. By the time it came out, I think it was like 2000 in North America, 1999 in Japan. So the PS2 was ready to come out. Uh, and it's lacking, while it has quite nice CGI productions here and there when they pop up, they actually look pretty good. Uh, it's it's missing some of the other polish that a Final Fantasy game would have. And when you go back and you compare Final Fantasy games to games of their era, it's really shocking sometimes. So one of the things I noticed that it doesn't have is it really shies away from showing faces. And the reason is that they just didn't actually put a lot of pixels into it. I mean, for a game that is actually 3D polygons and pre-rendered backgrounds, the faces are sort of drawn on in this kind of one pixel. You'll see an eye one pixel here, and then one's down there, so they look like really droopy. And But what I found is that I felt like I couldn't connect with the characters as well and understand what they were feeling by not seeing their face. And I think that a face really is such a connection to a character and when i went back and looked at final fantasy 7 you always see their faces and what i was shocked about going back to 7 is that they i didn't realize how much they looked like lego characters they just have these big faces with very drawn on cartoonish faces but like we saw with wind waker we can talk about that later is that cartoonish a, a cartoony way is a, is a really nice way of getting expression across so i thought that that was a huge difference uh between them and it was to the detriment of Dragoon, uh, and it, it sparked the whole reason I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's sort of no small like aesthetic secret that if you put a face on something, then we just as humans are kind of naturally more inclined to, um, I don't know, just gravitate towards it. It triggers a positive emotional response, I think is the like psychological term that people would throw around. Sure. Well, yeah, you get empathetic with it. It's, it's hard to, I mean, it's like you see this in movies all the time. I mean, the new, the latest star Wars movie has a lot of animals with very cute looking faces and it's designed to, yeah, just exactly. Huge eyes is something we see with super Mario. He's got a big round face, big round eyes. He smiles all the time. He's very overly expressive. He doesn't seem evil. He doesn't have jagged angular features and eyes and spiky hair. Yeah. Everything's smooth and round. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, and actually the director of final fantasy seven at the time, I think Sakaguchi had said he wanted, he went for the super deformed look for the final fantasy seven sort of real time um, when exploring the world because he thought he would get a lot more expression out of them. If you look at them compared to Final Fantasy VIII, where they went for more of that realistic proportions, they look realistic, but when you're on a sort of a world map or an area map and you're pulled away from the characters, you're not... can't see it anymore. Yeah, the detail's totally lost. So they went back to that with Final Fantasy IX, and it's just one of those sort of design by limitation of what you have with your technology. I mean, it's probably why they used to use super deformed... Uh, caricatures in say super nintendo and nintendo because they only had this little tiny pixel to work with on a very small screen 
and they thought, let's just make the heads gigantic so you can get some kind of expression out of them. Yeah, I mean, you keep using the term super deformed, but it's like, um, I guess it's almost like a chibi aesthetic. Yes. The idea that like in sort of anime um, or even just like any kind of cartoonish exaggeration of a character, um, the more a human being ends up resembling a baby, basically what it is. Like sure. babies have huge heads proportional to their body. Like an, an adult, I think, has like a... Uh, their head is one eighth of their body, whereas a baby, I think, it's one sixth. Okay, um, all right. Yeah, it's it's significant, right? And then uh, our eyes stay the same size throughout our entire lifespan. So when you have full size eyes in a very relatively small, well, large proportional to the body, but still a smaller head, like there's no you know question that a baby's head is smaller than an adult's head. So the eyes proportionally take up more space in the overall facial structure. So that's why we have this sort of association that large eyes uh, looks like something that's like baby-like. Mm. And basically, we have this very strong empathetical connection to anything which seems baby-like. That's why we find these features cute. Or again, they trigger positive emotional responses when we see them in used in like caricature, uh, character designs. Um game characters just anything that the anywhere where they take these features and it's not just the head size right it's also like the uh shorter more stocky limbs like obviously babies have like very sort of um, they got the the baby fat right so they're they're more pudgy almost i hesitate to use the term but um they also have uh not not one that you see used super often but whenever we see an animal or a baby like learning how to walk mm-hmm. and they have that kind of like stumble to their gait it's also kind of endearing to us so it's not strictly visual things it's behavioral things as well the more something reminds us of our own young as a species yeah. the more closely we can emotionally connect to it yeah i think that babies is probably a big one because in our dna as i mean if we're trying to get our human race to propagate we have yeah exactly so much of our primitive instincts revolve around creating more offspring and protecting them and also i think mm-hmm. that what goes along with that is a sense of vulnerability or or hiding something if, if a character has very large eyes Mm-hmm. They're not able to hide their expression from you and their emotions. And if they have maybe slitted eyes, you know they're evil. Or maybe they have shifty eyes because you don't know exactly what they're looking at. If you see a character that is very muscly compared to, say, if you're given a protagonist that's very weak and slender, it can seem more... If that protagonist is, is more vulnerable, then you might be uh, more worried about the environment around you and get more of a sense of tension or a sense of uh, being worried. Like... I'm trying to imagine if Mario was had muscles or if he was like a superhero type character, but he's he's just been he's been the everyman and he was which is interesting because he's the he was the sort of the game to bring that back to the mainstream market. Everybody knows Mario and he's not he's just nothing special. It looks like everybody's uncle, basically. And Pac-Man was just a giant face. You had even less to work with. And it was all face with just like a big... Yeah. I mean, why is he such an endearing character? It's because he, he's basically smiling and acting cute. And he's kind of acting like a baby. He's just going around. All he does is eat and move. And I don't, he doesn't poop, but he does pick up pellets. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah, sure. Like, that is definitely a characteristic of babies, the fact they pick things up and put them in their mouths. But yeah. Pac-Man is like actually just... I don't know. Um, you can... At the end of the day, like anytime we talk about psychology, it's a very like... 
it, it, it all becomes really hard to pin down. I guess that's the best way of saying it is that there's um, when we talk about like just so, so much of psychology over the ages has been overturned that like, we don't really have the same sort of concrete um, analysis of these things as we might certain other types of behaviors, just because psychology in general, humans are complex creatures and there's always like outliers and Mm -hmm. um, that sometimes the act of analyzing behavior can ruin the analysis because the behaviors are influenced by the analysis. It's almost like they're our own equivalent of like trying to observe quantum effects. Yeah. So um, one thing that has been rather consistent though, and this is something that I wanted to talk about is that like the sort of the, as much as you can use these features to sort of take advantage of the way that we like are endeared to things, there's a couple things that we want to specifically avoid. Um, so have you ever heard of the term? Well, I'm sure you've heard the term Uncanny Valley. Mm-hmm, yes. And do you know what it refers to? I mean, my understanding of it is that when something is trying to look so real that you mm-hmm. immediately, well, you're more apt and more likely to notice the things that aren't real. Yes, that's a, that's a great summation of it. Um, I've got a little bit of information that I compiled on it. So the Uncanny Valley was identified by a Japanese roboticist, uh, Masahiro Mori. And what he was looking at is the, uh, again, the sort of emotional response that we get from uh, when we look at a machine, when we look at mm. something like um, like a, in, a, in an assembly plant, when you have something that doesn't even look remotely human, it just triggers a baseline neutral response from people. They don't emotionally engage with it at all because it doesn't look like a living thing, much less a human thing. Um, so that becomes the sort of like low point on your sort of data curve. Uh, then as you start to see thing that looks like a robotic arm, then that's something we can sort of, uh, we have an association with. So, okay, arm starts to register more and like, okay, I have an arm. Mm-hmm. That machine has an arm. I, I, I get where that's going. And even if you it saw might, a robotic arm get um, sort of broken in half, you might instinctively yeah. feel something towards that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then you start to get like, Oh, you know, maybe you'll give a sort of cartoonishly blocky head to a robot with big, like rectangular eyes that light up sort of on and off. And it's, it's a very simple, very crude, very uh, caricatured depiction of the human form. But once you give something two eyes and a mouth, we recognize that as a face. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just like, you know, the sort of stock definition of like rectangular cuboid robot, that's already triggering a more positive emotional response in people because we recognize it as like, oh, this is a cute little caricature of a thing. Um, I noticed that a lot of times as, when I look yeah. at cars, like uh, at headlights and the front end of a car or the back end of a car. Yeah, the bumper, yeah. You see, yeah, the way the bumper and then the lights are, you can a car can look really angry or it can look sort of intimidating or it can look really dopey or... Nice. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a large part of that is actually very intentional by the companies that design these things. True. They want you to have, uh, you're either looking for a car that has this very aggressive look to it because that's the image you want to project, or you want something that looks very soft because that's the image you want to project. Sure. So as you continue to sort of move up on these data points uh, that are sort of forming into an upward slope, um, he started to realize that as you 
sort of summarized, the closer you get to something that looks human, the more we start to focus on the details that aren't right. human, that are distinctively like, whoa, the way its eyes move are very mechanical. It's not the same sort of fluidity mm-hmm. that we get with a regular um the the way that the our facial muscles kind of slowly deform and allow our uh like our head to move around very in a very like smooth and fluid way as opposed to a robot which might have like very jerky movements right so those are the things we start to pick up on and it freaks us out so suddenly you go from having this very high data point for something that was not exactly human but very human and it has a lot of cartoonish features that just dips all the way down yeah um that's that's so that's fascinating that that the less it looks human the more we're we're willing to fill in the gaps and i mean i think the when you talk about imagination i think there's so much overlap with that and video games where yeah throughout video games as they've evolved there's been so much that we attribute to it i mean you, you may have talked about playing like XCOM before on this podcast where that game doesn't have much of an actual story but a lot of people will have their own personal stories of it because they fill in the gaps through mm-hmm. the actions that are happening and and that's so amazing to me that all of a sudden you go from wanting to wanting it to be realistic to all of a sudden. Like I had a big thing with um, a, a realization with Horizon Zero Dawn, mm-hmm. where it's for the most part looks pretty realistic. But then when you get to the NPCs that they didn't have enough time to be spent on, like you were saying, you get these really kind of unnatural side to side movements, and and the whole time I'm just kind of constantly broken out of that immersion. Whereas yeah. I mean, like Naughty Dog and Uncharted, they're I was even playing uh, Uncharted 2 last night and the the facial capture they have is still so holds up so well where the, they get these tiny movements in a face that instead of breaking me from the immersion let me know exactly what that character meant by what they said and I mean but you know they approach it from a design philosophy of let's just do a few characters very very well and yeah. we'll have these linear corridors and we can make everything look very very well whereas Horizon Zero Dawn was trying to fill up a whole world Right. And that's where you're starting to actually break out. Like it wouldn't be called the valley unless there was another peak to the far side of it. Okay. So once you have this like perfectly mapped facial um, motion capture system, or I think even the term is now performance capture because you're not just capturing like the kinesthetic, uh, like the body movement, you're actually capturing an actor's entire performance. So the term motion capture is almost antiquated unless you're just talking about the sort of like uh, limbs moving around in space. So when you have all these data points, you're capturing far more detail than someone could ever approximate. Uh, like you're never, you're never going to have an animator uh, create this perfect lifelike semblance uh, in the same way that you can just capture by uh, using all the like the motion tracking dots on someone's face. Um, and that's where you have uh, studios like Pixar. They are riding high on the uh, sort of, if we're going from left to right this entire time and the extreme right is the sort of performance capture where that's the highest, we've climbed back out of the valley, Pixar is riding high on that peak that came just before the valley because they have very uh, obviously caricatured designs and they have emotions that play across these characters' faces but they're they're also exaggerated like they're exaggerated in a very intentional way 
to match the facial features of these cartoon characters. Mm-hmm. Because if you try to map realistic human expression onto a cartoon face, that looks really creepy. And if you try to map cartoon features onto a human face, oh my god, like that movie... Uh, Battle Angel? I, I forget the name of it, but it, it's so creepy. Okay. Have you seen this? Battle Angel? Oh, It's right. a new movie that's coming out. I saw it advertised. I saw a trailer for it recently, and every image of the character, for some reason, they tried to give her anime eyes, but in real life. Oh, God. So she just yeah, has yeah. huge eyes. It's terrifying. Oh, right. Okay, I'm looking at that ima- now. Yeah, yeah. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why they would do that. They are breaking so many, like, fundamental rules of, like, that's just... You've gone from making a character which looks appealing because it has large eyes to you've gone straight down to the bottom of the valley. Like, this is this is unsettling. It's uncanny. It's not at all what we want to see out of a protagonist character. No, and, and judging... So. I mean, just judging from what I've seen in the trailer, it seems like she's supposed to be more of a sympathetic character. But instead, it's yeah, like, yeah. maybe yeah. she should get torn apart. <laughs> I, yeah it's it's definitely like if if you're supposed to be rooting for this character like now i feel more like kill it with fire yeah. so yeah kind of missed the mark mm-hmm. on that one um right so you've got uh the performance capture yeah so that that is the whole point is that if you perfect um the sort of the ability to replicate human features. If we can create an Android that behaves and looks exactly like a human, then suddenly our emotional response to that escalates um, potentially even higher than the greatest peak that you could achieve on the other side of the valley. Mm. Because now we have something that looks and behaves, speaks, acts like a human. So we react to it in the same way as we would any other human. And, um, you know, it's not that we've uh, really seen many examples of that. You see a lot of examples of like maybe a face, um, like just the face of something, but then it, it also gets really creepy if they pull the camera out and you see that it's just a head with a bunch of wires coming out of the bottom or even like a torso. Right. So there's there's a long way to go before we have something in the sort of like realm of robotics that really achieves that level of... Um, that that height on the other side of the valley. But I think performance capture has gone a long way into making digital characters believable in a digital world. Yeah. When you start to take um, digital characters and insert them into, um, into the same scene with other real life actors, like they tried to do in uh, Rogue One recently oh, yeah. with uh, a couple of characters. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, and I think Princess Leia at the end, right? Yeah, I didn't want to mention that one just in case, but it's been out for a long time now. Oh, whoops! I think that, I mean it's I think, not it's not a spoiler because everyone knows that the end of Rogue One yeah, is the beginning. That's true. Of, okay, it's a prequel. The, the only right. the only spoiler is that they spoiled her character by making her look like that. And see, the thing is, like, I didn't really notice that she was CG because they they sort of pulled focus on the character mm. in the background who was a real human actor and they had her in shot almost by herself. So that was more convincing to me than when you had uh, Grand Moff Tarkin interacting directly side by side with other people. And it's very noticeable. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was really expecting like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be the full 
power of Disney, you know, all the resources they have on hand, the power of CG that they could pull off. And no, you can still tell very obviously that that is a digital character that they've just plastered over an actual human's face. So, I mean, when it comes I to think, when it comes to CG in general and, and and practical effects, I mean, this is getting yeah. a little bit away from video games, but sure, in 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 the way it all relates, it's, it's related. I've always loved practical effects, even like I think an, a rubber mask looks so much more realistic because up close or mm. or a, a model like a a, yeah. a very small model that blows up. That is a real tangible thing, and your brain can tell that. Like you say, especially when it's in another, when it's in a scene. CGI looks great in a distance. If you want to yeah. animate a, a much bigger army, or like yeah. the weather, or you want to do a background or something. But like you say, when you put Grandma Tarkin up next to a human, that there's something about the skin and that texture and the softness, and it's it's just so instantly, uh, your brain knows that's not real. Yeah, and we will get there. We will absolutely be able to create computer systems that can replicate real life, like light reflection off of skin. Sure. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of technologies. I think subsurface scattering is one that you hear where like the way that light diffuses on a particular surface, like it's uh, whenever you see light shining off of human skin or whether you see, uh, especially the eyes. Oh my God. The one thing we are going to have the hardest time accurately capturing is the way that light plays across our eyes because right. when we look at faces we're looking at the eyes we are more than more than a face like you put a face on something people are drawn towards the face but more than anything they are drawn towards the eyes and that is where we're going to have the most difficulty because we scrutinize eyes more than any other aspect of a uh like something that is being like uh shown to us i guess mm -hmm. it's hard to uh say but again as as you sort of said we could have this like very realistic looking character in the background but when you sort of zoom in and pull focus on them and you zoom focus so that it's cropped on their face okay but the moment that you zoom in like to get uh just maybe the eyes in profile that's where we can really see like the, the limits of this technology you almost need like a separate higher uh, polygon count model just for that region of the face. Because yeah. if you're going to be zoomed in that far, then there's just so much more detail that's necessary. Yeah. And that might be something that we see. I mean, uh, I was playing through Metal Gear Solid 2 today, the remaster of it. And you can see where the faces are of a certain uh, quality because mm -hmm. Kojima knew back then and with the and how they did with the remaster that is what people are going to be looking at and then maybe the camera flips down lower actually same with Uncharted you'll see a, a gas pedal or something and mm -hmm. somewhere they have to cut these corners and the gas yeah. pedal is going to be like a very very obvious polygon that looks straight out of the PS1 era but you know they realize that they put the uh, they put the resources where they need to and that's in faces and eyes and trying to get that going I mean did you have more on that topic or did you want to bring this back to how it sort of applies to games? Yeah. So let's, let's talk a bit about like the sort of other side of this. Let's say that uh, you're trying to create a horror game and you want to play up this level of uncanniness. Mm. Well, it's almost easier to do by accident when you're trying to create something that looks good. Sure. Um, you know, I think there was, um, I'd heard sort of secondhand stories that Scott Cawthon, the creator of the Five Nights at Freddy's series, um, says that he was inspired to create the games because when he was trying to animate characters, people um, 
were insulting the animations he produced, saying that they looked like something you'd see in an animatronic. So he's like, okay. And then, <laughs> and then he creates these characters that are now incredibly recognizable under the guise of being horror and, and actually playing into that, the fact that these are animatronics. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to, I mean, it's just, I found that a great story. And I like so much about how, because video games are, are a medium that combines technology with art. They, I love when you hear the reason something is created because that's just what they had to work with. And yeah. they embraced that and it ended up becoming something that was unique and very effective. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if that's just hearsay. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but it, 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 it definitely plays into the fact that if you're trying to create something uncanny, that, that sort of like, well, I guess when people were saying that the animatronics, um, that, that his animations looked like something you'd see in an animatronic, it's because of that stuff I was talking about earlier, where they they have these very like sharp, um, like quick start, quick stop kind of movements. They, they don't have the sort of natural fluidity that you get from regular right. human motion. And they look very they, segmented where this part yeah. moves this way, this part moves that way. Yeah, exactly. So, when like if you're trying to create something uncanny though there's more than you can play with like anything that seems uncanny to us is just something that is out of the ordinary and you have to take something that we are very familiar with that we see on a day-to-day basis so humans that's an obvious one um but you can also take something as simple as uh, one example that i heard in an extra credits video talking about this exact subject they used a flickering light we know how lights are supposed to behave. We know that there's a certain level of expectation that if you have a light and it's flickering, it means that there's a lack of maintenance. It means that mm-hmm. it's not functioning properly. And this this creates this sort of tension. Um, you can get that from a picture of something like a chair that you can imagine balanced on two legs. You have this feeling that you know a chair is supposed to be balancing on four legs, assuming it has four. Um and you get this feeling of unbalance. Like, you know that that's not its sort of natural state of rest. So there's what you can do to sort of play with um, what we consider uncanny. You can intentionally play up these things. I think I had another couple examples written down here. Um, let's see. I mean, like if you if you see a bridge and it's missing a few planks along the way or it has the, the rope, say it's a drawbridge and it's, it's got a frayed rope, you know, Anything that looks sort of in disrepair or, yeah. uh, is, but I mean, that can also make things look more realistic and more lived in. I mean, early sci-fi, everything looked brand new because they had just built it for the movie yeah. and it made, it made things look very sterile. And you saw with Alien and Star Wars, they created universes that looked lived in. And that yeah. was a lot of times because George Lucas had a lot of his props, I think, destroyed or lost in the beginning and had to just find a bunch of junk and put it all together. So the uh, the other couple examples I brought is like something as benign as like a portrait that's askew, which is is probably going to trigger an OCD response in more people than an uncanny response. But it's something mm. it does trigger a very strong emotional response. Like we know we expect things to be lined up properly. So when you start playing with angles and deliberately skewing things or having um, playing with like uh, playback speed of things, if you have Sure. Um, something like if we if we imagine a bouncing ball, we have a very distinct idea of the way gravity behaves on Earth. So when you start 
like messing with the speed of something or you have even just like a heavy object floating in space in a way that it really doesn't look like it should be able to float you can Mm -hmm. there's a lot of very simple tricks you can use to start um really laying this uh bedrock i guess for a, a proper horror experience that's this yeah it's 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 all to say that the the same psychological tricks that we want to use in a positive aspect to play up how much people enjoy or get positive emotional responses out of something, we can mm-hmm. also use those same tricks and in a way it's much easier to get in a negative uh, emotion, emotional response from someone, assuming that's what you want. That's true. Yeah, it, I mean, it's easier to go freaky and go weird. I mean, it, basically, a lot of beauty comes, like our perception of beauty is uh, from symmetry. Yeah. Whereas if you see somebody and everything is lined up, I mean, people don't generally don't like the idea of a very big nose or one eye smaller than the other. Mm-hmm. Or when you say somebody has, oh, they have a big nose, that's only in proportion to their face. They might have mm-hmm. the same size nose as somebody else who is considered to have the perfect nose. But also you can end up losing, when something is too symmetrical, you can lose any sort of um, personality or quality to it. I was mm-hmm. looking at... You see a lot of games advertised on, say, mobile stores, for example, and they'll have some kind of generic-looking RPG-type heroine or hero. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at it, and I thought, like, what makes it so different from, say, looking at a character from a game that I know of or that I would want to get to know? And I think it's, it's not the imperfections, but straying from complete symmetry to create Mm -hmm. uh something a little bit interesting about that character that makes you want to find out more about them or that makes them seem because i mean humans we uh, we we generally look quite a bit different from each other uh if you just go and people watch you see that there's all shapes and sizes if you go to a pool we see we're all a bunch of lumpy weirdos so i think in putting that into a game as well you can create a bit more of a human feel to it yeah absolutely if everyone's just the sort of like um, copied from the perfect template sort of thing that you get an emotional disconnect from the audience. Yeah, I, actually, and I find that sometimes with a lot of anime. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played through Tales of Zillion, and a lot of the characters, it can be hard to, there's not a lot to tell them apart at, at first blush until they start talking a lot more and then you start to get to know them. But at first, I mean, it's like when people first see a picture of the Beatles and they can't tell them apart. And then once you've known them for a while, you realize, like, how could you ever? But mm-hmm. it's... Uh, yeah, I think that you need to walk that line where you want them to be pleasing and you want them to be vulnerable. You want them to emote. You want them to put across what you're trying to put across as a writer to evoke that emotional response, but right. remembering to put in a bit of character. Yeah, because again, like game design is all about creating an experience. So you you should be very careful so that your intentions, like the experience that you end up creating is in line with what you meant to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just sort of like a couple quick hits. Sure. Uh, I loved with, like for say for example Breath of the Wild and mm-hmm. uh, Wind Waker in terms of Zelda games that use more of a cel shaded and a more of an animated style I mean the most expressive we've probably ever seen Zelda's in Wind Waker with that big cartoony face yeah and those are the two ones that hold up the most over time Twilight Princess or say Ocarina of Time that went for kind of a more realistic style yeah. in a way big polygons they were impressive at the time but you know they quickly age because that technology moves so fast and it's so easy to see where the problems are and it's um i think i played a what was it last night um beholder it's mm. it's a, a game where you play it's kind of like papers please mixed with this war of mine it's a a very it's trying to portray a dark war-torn eastern mm. european area and they use 
pencil drawing and charcoal and these characters get so many they're basically all black but because they use the charcoal and the pencil you mm-hmm. get varying levels of black mm-hmm. and it's and you're and it fits perfectly with the game that's trying to portray not just a world of gray area but basically mm-hmm. varying shades of evil and how far can a person go down an evil path if what they're doing is maybe in the service of helping their family and i think that that art style really really works well to serve that purpose yeah, I mean, color psychology is its entirely own, like, branch of things. Like, we've talked sure. about the sort of, like, human model sort of side of things, but we could talk at length about the way colors are used to, like, help reinforce, draw people towards things, draw people away from things, all that sort yeah. of stuff. I mean, in Uncharted, they do a great job of making the world look very realistic, and all they do is they saturate mm-hmm. areas you can climb with, with color a lot more, and it makes it basically, it's. I mean, it's like looking at a, a lit path. It's like the yellow yeah. brick road without being too unnatural. Mm-hmm. But that also came out at a time when, after Grand Theft Auto 3, it became the cool thing to do to make all of your games look very brown, and very mm-hmm. gritty and very realistic. And after a while, that gets so tiring yeah. where it's, you know, it doesn't have to be there for everything. Right, exactly. All right, we all had a lot of stuff to talk about? I think so, for now. Hey, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for bringing all uh, those great examples in. I'll, uh, I feel more equipped to talk about the Uncanny Valley, and I'll think about this every time I'm playing games. That was episode 51. You can find this on um, the Blue Screen Productions website as an audio podcast and under iTunes. And there's a YouTube version of it at a 90s kid YouTube channel at 90skid.com. My name is Matt. I write f- and make videos for a 90s kid. And you can find my Twitter at GameThinkTalk. How about you, Attila? You can follow me on Twitter at Pro or my personal handle, Attila Gabriel. You can also submit uh, questions or feedback about the show uh, on my website, bluishgreenproductions.com. And yeah, if you have the second, if you can take a moment to leave a review for us on iTunes, that'd be great. Really helps us know that you're interested and you want to hear more. It does. It helps us with ranking. And then more people will watch and we'll be more motivated to make even more episodes. Although I think at this point, nothing's going to stop us. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye bye.